Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. Once again, I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and today's show is about wealth, Wall Street, and real assets. And I've brought Dr. Buck Joffrey onto the show to talk about this. You see, Buck knows the old mantra of, quote, investing in a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, close quote, is simply outdated and dangerous, and especially for high-paid professionals, given the instability and the volatility in the markets today. So, you know, he advocates entrepreneurship and investing, especially in hard assets and those that provide cash flow, because that's really the reliable way and the approach to building solid personal finance. And, you know, I'm in line with his thinking and and what he advocates. So I wanted to get him on the show to talk about, you know, his perspective on these things. And it was an interesting conversation. So I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. So we'll be back in just a moment. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Buck Joffrey to the show. Buck is an accomplished surgeon, entrepreneur, asset manager, and podcaster. He is also the number one best-selling author of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. He, with a negative net worth upon finishing his surgical training back in 2008, Buck quickly became a serial entrepreneur and real asset investor, amassing an eight-figure net worth. Buck, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure having you on. I listen to your podcast. I love the content you put out because I consider myself an armchair economist and I like to learn about the global economy, macroeconomics, how things play into real estate and other asset classes here in the US and you know where I should invest and where I should maybe not invest. And before we get into all that stuff, which I find really interesting, let's start off with you. Take a minute or so or as long as you want and tell us about your journey, how you got started from becoming a doctor and then getting into real estate and and an asset manager. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it started out, as you said, I was your typical A student, as Tom Wheelwright would say, the recovering A student, right? (laughs) You know, I went through medical school, graduated top of my class, started out in a neurosurgery residency to become a brain surgeon, decided lifestyle wasn't for me, but I finished another type of surgical training that was a little bit easier on my life, but it was still surgery. Enjoyed doing that. So I spent about 33 years preparing myself and getting trained, et cetera, and then practiced for about four or five years and then effectively retired. So, wow. <laughs> so in, in short, no, but basically what happened is that was about 2008, 2009 when I finished my training and I was pretty academic guy was very interested in all the way, you know, research stuff and so on and so forth. And and right around 2008, 2009, obviously there was a mortgage meltdown, all these people losing their money. 
So fortunately for me, I didn't have any money already. And so it gave me a chance to look at what other people did wrong. So one of the thoughts that I had when I was coming out was, okay, well, I've gone several years making minimum wage as a surgical resident, and now I'm going to go up six figures plus. How am I going to do this differently than all these people who lost a bunch of money? So instead of going the route of just being a uh, another guy who hands my money over to a financial planner, I took it upon myself to become more self-educated, got inspired by, of course, Mr. Kiyosaki, the man who's probably created more millionaires than anybody else on earth. And, you know, I got inspired from them, started my own practice, turned that into a business, phased myself out, did it again with another business, phased myself out. And then before you know it, I started making a lot of money. And then I had to figure out how to invest, as we talked about before. And at this point, reverted back to the fact that my dad has been a landlord for 50 years. And I decided, well, hey, I didn't have to pay a penny for med school because he paid for me. I never had a problem with money, so it must work. So I dumped a bunch of money into buying uh, apartment buildings, did really well. And at that point, you know, I had people saying, well, what are you doing here? Because you seem to be making all this money and you're only like four years out of training. And effectively, that sort of made me realize that, hey, there is a huge gap out there in terms of high paid professionals or highly specialized who know everything there is about things crazy as brain surgery or, you know, a rocket science. But they couldn't tell you at all how they're going to invest their money. When it comes to that, they just hand their money over to a financial planner who maybe took a six month course. Sounds crazy to me. And I couldn't handle it, so I had to do something about it, and that's where the podcast came in. Yeah, there are so many people in that category, especially high-paid professionals, where they make six-figure incomes, and they're great at what they do, and they probably love what they do. But then when it comes to the whole subject matter of investing, they really are clueless, and they rely on other people, and they say, here, take my money, invest it, and tell me what to do with it. And I call those people professionals with low financial IQs and they get themselves into trouble because they're making Wall Street rich and they're getting low returns and taking on all the risk. So the people that are listening to this podcast episode and many of the people we work with cover the whole gamut. We have everybody from newbies to high paid professionals with high incomes. The common theme I find with a lot of people is lack of time and or lack of knowledge. Now, I know you work with high paid professionals. So, you know, explain to me how high paid professionals such as doctors make these mistakes. They make a lot of money. And as you would put it, they're in a world of these quote unquote golden handcuffs. Explain that to me, please. Well, first of all, one of the things I think is the golden handcuffs. What that means is there is a phenomena and it's not just physicians, but any high paid professionals. You see this across the board. What happens is we're in training. We're not making that much money. And we think, gosh, you know, hundred thousand, couple hundred thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money. And the next, you know, we're making it. But what happens is our lifestyles elevate to the occasion. So instead of, okay, now we're making a bunch of money and it feels like I've got a ton of money. Instead, it feels like I'm making a ton of money and it still feels like I don't have enough money. Right. That's the golden handcuffs. And listen, my show is not about, you know, skipping lattes and all that stuff. It's about creating wealth. But I think what happens to your point about, you know, how do they get in those situations where, you know, they're making bad decisions about their money? I mean, listen, from a doctor's perspective and, you know, not all my listeners are doctors, but a lot of them, probably about 70 percent of my investor group that works with me is made up of doctors. And here's the deal. When we're in medical school, we take what's called the Hippocratic Oath, right? So first, do no harm. And effectively, what that means to us 
is that when somebody comes to us as doctors and they're wanting help, we're not going to try to screw them over in the process, right? But that's the way the financial world works. And whether they are doing this from outright nefarious reasons or whatnot, what happens is that it's built into the system. I mean, if you look at you know mutual funds having an average of a 3.5% load, or the huge commissions that people take when they quote unquote manage your wealth, you know? So we're not expecting that as physicians. We're very simple people. When we come out, we are people who want to do good for the world and we expect that others are going to be the same. So that's why I think that physicians in particular tend to get victimized. But you know, the reality is that the more and more I talk to people, it's just software engineers or lawyers, even the lawyers are a little bit better because everybody's scared of them. Right. Right. (laughs) But A lot of high-paid professionals got their face down in the books. I mean, they just don't expect to get knifed in the back. That's all. But why are they so bad at investing? I mean, it just seems like they're smart enough. They're studious. They've been living in books for so many years, a third of their life. And you'd think they would be more intelligent about investing. What's the problem? Well, because it wasn't in the curriculum, right? I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. What makes an A student, and this is sort of jokingly said recovering A student earlier, but what I mean by that is the problem with being a very, very good student is that you always get things right. You always pass the test. Somebody tells you what to do and you learn it and you perform and then somebody gives you a pat on the back. That's the way you're conditioned right? Now, the problem is that as part of a curriculum that leads you to become, you know, an engineer or a doctor or something like that, there really isn't something that says, all right, well, how are you going to invest? That's not part of our curriculum. So effectively, what we do is we fall back to what has become a societal norm, which is once you start making that money, then you got to find a professional, right? A professional who knows what to do with your money. And that's the responsible thing to do. And if we don't do that, we're doing something wrong. You know, listen, I have a bunch of investors who have said to me in the past, they're like, you know what, this is really liberating because I've been told my whole life that this is what I'm supposed to do, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and that if I don't do that, I'm being irresponsible. But you're, what you've done yourself and what the guests you have on the show are showing us otherwise. Yeah, I think those people have been indoctrinated by the media and the quote-unquote sales professionals or financial professionals that are out there teaching you that stocks, bonds, and mutual funds are the norm. They are the real investments out there. And then everything else like real estate, for example, is an alternative. Well, I mean, think about it. Real estate as an investment has been around for hundreds of years, long before these paper assets have existed. And so from my perspective, the alternative investments are really these destructive paper investments that you get from Wall Street and financial planners. That's exactly right. I mean, the whole concept of paper assets or intangible assets is something that's it's only been with us for, gosh, what, maybe 100 years or so. I mean, it's or maybe, you know, 150, 200 years, whatever. But, you know, listen, I'm not a huge investor in gold, but you take gold, for example, an ounce of gold in Roman times, in times of Christ, bought you the finest toga around, right? And and an ounce of gold today buys you a fine suit, right? I mean, so there's value in real things. And I think that, you know, obviously we prefer real things that cash flow, But the funny thing about paper and intangible assets is that they have this funny way of vanishing. 
right? So if you had 2008, you had the dot-com bubble, you know, trillions of dollars of wealth globally just vanishing. Boom. That doesn't happen when somebody owns a home and owns a rental because somebody has to live there and have a roof over their head and has to pay you rent if they want to live there. So that's the difference in my view. Yeah. Well, that's why it's a hard asset and they consider it a real asset. I agree. I'm not a fan of paper assets, but you know, that's a good segue to my next question. You know, you refer to saving or investing in the stock market as an outdated and dangerous paradigm. Can you expand on that? Well, I think as times have gone by, the level of fees, the level of loads and those things and that sort of thing has gotten worse over time from Wall Street. I say Wall Street, but this is really about financial planners who are really the minions of Wall Street, right? So these are the products that most people are getting are from Wall Street. But the point is that there may have been a time in the last 50 years where somebody could reliably say that if they were investing for the long run, you know, that's what everybody likes to talk about, investing for the long run, that they're going to be okay. But now, first of all, with the volatility of the markets, with the uncertainty of the economy, and with all these loads and fees on top of it, that if you do the thing that you're supposed to do, you may end up dying broke, right? That's why I call it outdated, because I think that there are a lot of people who are following those paradigms who really do you know, especially if you take into consideration the fact that people are living longer and longer, have an uncomfortably high risk of dying broke. Well, people are living longer, so you're going to need more money to be able to stretch out for a longer period of time. You have an inflationary environment, which is going to continually devalue the purchasing power of whatever you do amass. And last but not least, people who are saving or investing in their 401k, I mean, that's just a money trap. The thing is, is if you expect to have the same lifestyle or better when you do eventually retire you're going to be taxed at a higher tax rate. Unless you're poor and you're at a low tax bracket, you're going to have taxes working against you by the time you do retire. So it's really a backwards way of thinking about retirement and saving for retirement. Right. I mean, if you think about it too, like what you said is absolutely true about everybody pushing the idea of the IRA and 401k and you can defer your tax. But the assumption is always that you're going to make a lot less money once you retire, right? So Personally, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to make a lot less money when I no, retire. No, I don't think most people do. Yeah, well, but you'd think that. But, you know, I literally, that's part of the whole thing. I mean, I had a fairly well-known physician that has a blog that a lot of physicians follow, but it's really sort of traditional, you know, stocks, bonds, and mutual fund stuff. But he was making the argument that physicians should plan on potentially living on 20% of what they make today. And I was wow. like, there's no way I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's depressing. Right. But I mean, it's a scarcity mentality. And I think people like you and me and, you know, some of the others that I think we mutually know, we all have an abundance mindset that's different. It's not about trying to save pennies and skip lattes. It's about trying to expand your means and trying to make sure that you can ultimately, you know, enjoy the life you want. I mean, and for me, that's wealth, right? I don't look at wealth necessarily as an amount of money. I look at it as time. How much exactly. time have you created, right? And that's really what I think most people's currency actually is. It's not money, it's time. Yeah. And once you get a certain type of income or residual income, so on and so forth, it frees you up and you have that time 
And that's what everybody wants. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm, I measure wealth in terms of time, not dollars. And so I actually did a podcast episode on the differences and similarities between being rich and being wealthy and which one's better. And that's exactly what I was talking about. But yeah, having an abundance mindset to expand your means and be able to help your you, your family and your heirs and what you pass along. And in the process of doing that, at least for me, and I think this is true for you too, when you grow your business, you actually employ more people. And so we can help more people and we can give more to charities and feed more people. I mean, there's so much more you can do when you're rich or wealthy than you can if you're poor. You know, the saying goes, you know, the best way to help the poor is not to become one of them. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, there's a little bit of a paradox there because I think a lot of people who commit their lives to charity and good works, I mean, I mean, good for them. I mean, I think that's fantastic. The only thing is they could probably do even more if they made a bundle of money and then did what they were doing and then, you know, spread that money around, right? So yeah, I had a gentleman on my show actually last week who what he does is he I think it might even be your neighbor I don't know but he's got he tries to make a money so they pass it on to Haiti Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he is my neighbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. So good for him. I mean, good for him. I mean, for me, I mean, personally, why am I doing what I'm doing? I mean, I could just retire. People talk about retiring, but what does that mean? If it means just going out and playing golf, that's not me. I would get bored out of my mind. I'm doing a podcast because I'm sort of retired, right? I'm trying to educate people about something that I'm passionate about. And then I'm continuing to invest. And because, you know, it makes sense for me to do it in a syndication model, because I know what I'm doing and then it allows me to help others to come along. Oh, you know, yeah. Aside. So again, it's, you know, it's all how you measure it. But I mean, this yep. is what retirement is for me. So yeah, there's a lot of value in putting together a syndication model based around hard cash flowing assets. So speaking of that, and speaking of retirement, you know, one thing I've heard you talk about before is the formulas that people use to calculate how much someone actually needs to retire is not accurate in any way, shape or form. So explain why I've heard you say that using cash flow investing is a much more reliable way to predict when you can retire. And I think we touched upon this, but expand on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think the traditional way of investing is, again, it's a little bit of a scarcity model, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to pack away as much money as possible. And it's almost like you're just you're imagining you're going on a trip and you're trying to fill this bottle up with as much water as you can so that you don't run out. Yeah. And the hope is that in life, once you retire, that you'll die of something else before you die of thirst, right? So you're effectively hoping that your money outlives you. That's kind of something that's a little bit scary, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe you run out of money. I mean, if you have a finite amount of money, then it's a game of roulette. Who knows what's going to happen, right? Yeah. The difference, of course, is when we talk about streams of income, then you don't have a bottle of water. You have a bunch of streams of never-ending water, or in this case, cash flow, that come together and make this large river, and you can never go thirsty because you've got this source of ongoing cash flow that feeds you until you die, and then you know it can be passed on to your heirs. So that's exactly, I think, the way I look at it. So Yeah, I agree. So when it comes to real assets, I mean, we both like real assets to hedge against inflation, and ultimately that leads to the creation of true and perpetual wealth. Do you have favorites? What are your favorites in terms of assets and real assets? Well, I like real estate. I grew up in a real estate family. My dad is a landlord in the truest sense. He's not an asset manager. I mean, he literally, I go home, I still get tenants calling the house. 
but you know, he's done this for single family homes and smaller multifamily buildings and so on and so forth. For me, because I ended up a business guy, you know, I'm, I'm a business guy. I have businesses and operations and so on and so forth. My preferred mode of investing is larger assets, preferably, you know, 100 unit plus apartment buildings, BNC class. So when I think about my investing philosophy, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, cash flow first. You got to make sure you understand your investment. In other words, how does it make money? Well, somebody has to pay you to live there. That's how it makes money. Invest in something that's real, right? And, and there's nothing more real than a roof over somebody's head. So the other thing about apartment buildings that I really like is the fact that you can use scale, right? So that, of course, allows property management and it allows having one roof instead of, you know, several hundred roofs for single family homes, which again, I don't see a problem with. It's just my preference. And it's, for me, it's also the ability to deploy more capital. So as opposed to buying, you know, putting down $20,000 at a time, I like leverage. It's rare that I'm going to buy something without leverage. You can put in a bigger chunk. So if you've got more to deploy, you can do that. So for all those reasons, you know, I think scale and I think efficiency and the ability to deploy more capital and bring investors along. That's why I've sort of steered towards apartment buildings. Now, that said, you know, I've also syndicated parts of hotels and we're looking at a variety of other things. You know, I'm not that dogmatic about asset classes. If they make sense, they make sense. And that's what I think you were alluding to before. Even though I love real estate, my show is not a real estate show. It's an investing show. Right. And we try very hard to show all sorts of different kinds of things that people can invest in. They do have common themes or frequently cash flow related, but I've had people talking about coffee farms and chocolate and I've had people talk about developments and sure any number of things and and there's there's just so many things to choose from yeah and and you're a serial entrepreneur and so you understand the value of business and that you can get some of your greatest leverage through business so I would assume that's also a favorite of yours because it certainly is of mine yeah I mean with businesses it is a favorite of mine and in fact definitely that's probably my favorite thing to do is actually start businesses but <laughs> I haven't gotten to the point where I have brought anybody along for that ride yet And I may do that at some point, but from a business perspective, I tend to take some pretty big risks. But as they say, you know, know, no guts, no glory, right? I mean, so if I hadn't taken the risks that I'd taken and put the money on the line that I've put, I wouldn't be where I am at now. Yeah. So I haven't necessarily gotten other people involved from a syndication perspective on the business side of things. It's been primarily related to sort of your typical investment vehicles. So Yeah, definitely. So before we wind this up, let me ask you about your opinion or perspective on the state of our economy, whether global or, or locally. You know, we have a new president, you know, the feds are talking about raising rates again. There's just a lot of dynamics going on. Where do you see us a year, two years, three years from now? Well, I follow a lot of these guys like Jim Rickards and that sort of thing. And their message resonates with me. If you really look at where the economy is right now, it's, I mean, we're in a bubble. There's no question we're in a bubble, right? The funny thing about a bubble is that it's rare when people actually know we're in a bubble, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a bubble, right? Right, right. It's all hindsight. Right, it's all hindsight. But if you look at the biggest players in the market right now, whether it's George Soros, but, you know, whatever, these guys are actively shorting the S&P 500, Mm -hmm. right? They're actively shorting it. And why is that? Well, because if you look at the facts, the facts are, I saw an article in the Washington Post uh, this morning that 
corporate earnings, you know, the blue chip companies haven't moved in three years, but the Dow has climbed above 20,000, right? So what does that tell you? It means that we've got price to earnings ratios are way out of proportion. In fact, they haven't been this high. I think it was since, I want to say it was Great Depression. I, it's, it's out of whack. It's completely yeah. out of whack. The valuations are ridiculous. What happens in a situation like that is it's just a matter of time. And so there is going to be a correction. I'm sure of it. I don't know if it's going to be next month and I don't know if it's going to be a year from now. But that kind of consistent problem with the markets being way overvalued just is not sustainable. Now, you put that together with the fact, as you brought up, the interest rates are going up. The interest rates are going up and that was balanced by what I think would be called an irrational exuberance once Trump got elected because there was a, a sense that Trump was going to come in on this you know, white horse. Corporate tax rates were going to immediately fall and we were going to have all sorts of stimulus through projects across the country and so on and so forth. And Christopher Whalen was on my show a few weeks ago and he made a very good point, which was that that, yeah, even if Trump did, you know, have these huge infrastructure projects going, there's no such thing as a shovel ready project. So these things are years right. out. And so I think we've got multiple issues here. I think we've got a bubble and then you put the bubble with low earnings and then you put that on top with rising interest rates. I think you've got a real problem because globally you look at sovereign debt. That's a problem, too. People won't be able to pay us back if we raise rates. So I'm not optimistic about the economy, but I think that my perspective is that when these things happen, we get into more debt overall. The only way you can get out of debt is by printing money. And you print money, inevitably you're going to end up with inflation, right? Because you're going to water down your currency. So I think the only way to get out of things like this is ultimately through cranking up inflation because that erodes debt. Yeah. And so we have to think about, well, where do we want to be if we know, you know that there will be an acceleration in inflation? And that's where we come back to real assets. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The only exit is through inflation. And in order to protect yourself, the only way to protect your own local economy is to invest in real assets that are hedges against inflation. So, I mean, that was a great answer to the question there, Buck. And, and I really think the takeaway from that is to protect you and your family by investing in hard assets and ideally those at cash flow. Because at the end of the day, you can't change the global economy, you can't change the national economy, but you do have some control over your own personal local economy. Yeah. I mean, in fact, one thing I'll say just to add to that is one of the concepts I use, what I talk about in my book is to invest using Maslow's hierarchy in mind, right? Mm -hmm. In good times and bad, what do we need? We need a roof over our heads, right? That's the easiest way to do that. That's security. The easiest way to do that is invest where people need to live. I mean, that's why I don't do commercial. You know, I don't do mini malls and things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good point. Well, let's wrap up. Just tell us real quick the purpose of your Wealth Formula podcast and then tell our listeners how they can find you and or get more information on you and your book. Yeah, sure. So Wealth Formula podcast, you can get that on obviously iTunes, Stitcher, any way you get this show. Wealthformula.com is my website. Lots of good things on that site, by the way. You know, I've got a actually right now, since it's tax season, I have a uh, download on how to legally save thousands of dollars in taxes. 
And so you can get that off the site. You can get there's a free book offer, et cetera. My book is called Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. That's on Amazon. You can get that there. And, you know, my show is probably I would characterize it again as the avatar here is just a high paid professional who really knows what they do at work and wants to try to self-educate themselves and not rely on your neighborhood wealth manager to lose all your money. So beautiful. Love it. Buck, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to be on our show today, and it was great information, so I'm sure I'll be uh, having you on again here in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Buck. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.